Think for a moment about a prayer that God has answered in your life. As you're thinking about that, it doesn't need to be the biggest prayer that you ever prayed or the time that you most fervently wrestled with God. Just the simple reality of something that you prayed for and God answered. He made it happen. Now, depending on the specific situation that you're thinking about, consider for a moment some of the specific details that needed to take place in order for your specific prayer to be answered in a very specific way by God. Last night I was thinking about a prayer or prayers that I had offered to God several years ago, prayers that I had forgotten about, frankly. I was thinking about a time when, when I visited a Catholic seminary preparatory high school. And the idea is that it prepared you <clears throat> to go to seminary in order to become a Catholic priest. And I remember praying about it, and I remember thinking about it, Not the words specifically, but I remember asking the Lord, what would it look like? What would it look like to serve you with my whole life in full time ministry? I remember thinking also about being married and having a family and and praying because I wasn't exactly sure how that would work out in a Catholic context. But when I think about it, when I think about what God had to plan ahead of time in order for for those prayers to be answered in a way that surpassed anything that I actually prayed or even could have imagined to pray, when I think about the detailed ways God had to direct me and repeatedly turn me from self-destructive paths, when I think about what I, what I needed to learn about life or learn theologically, when I think about the conversations God needed to orchestrate it in order for me to even become a Christian, let alone a pastor, when I think about how, how God directed my life to, to perfectly intersect Christie's life, at precisely the right time, and all that has followed since then. It literally causes me to stop and simply worship Him who is able. Perhaps the same thing will happen for you as we consider the focus at the end of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. Our passage this morning is Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of Almighty God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power 
at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord, lead us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, let's first just take a second to frame out Paul's prayer here so that we can basically see the simplicity of what he is praying. If you, if you have your Bibles and you look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, you can see that essentially this is all that Paul is praying. He's saying, now to him, of course that's God, so he's praying to God, be glory, that's verse 21, forever. Amen. That's essentially the prayer. To God, be glory forever. Amen. And then he has some descriptors in between those fence posts. And this morning I'm just going to comment on those as we walk through verses 20 and 21. This final prayer in verses 20 and 21 serves the the dual purpose of wrapping up the first half of the letter and setting up the second half of the letter because we have come to the midpoint of the book of Ephesians just a few or several months after we began. Now, though the main themes of the book of Ephesians carry through from the beginning of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 6, nonetheless, there is a clear distinction between the first half of the book in chapters 1 through 3 and the second half of the book in chapters 4 through 6. And the pattern of the book of Ephesians is a similar pattern that we see in many, many other places in the Scriptures. The pattern that we see over and over from God in His Word is this. First, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you what I have done for you. And then in light of this, because of who I am, I'm going to exhort you to act and to live and to love in a particular way. You might think of Exodus 20, where the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, or in light of this, in light of who I am and what I have done, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, etc., etc., etc. This is the pattern that we see in the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, again and again and again, God reveals this is who I am and this is what I have done for you in Christ. Paul has repeated that over and over. And then in the last three chapters of the book, four, five, and six, he will say, in light of all of these things being true, this is how I want you to live together. This is how I want you to love one another. Now, think for a moment about 
how you pray typically. What is your natural tendency in prayer? Do you tend to pray big prayers like like Paul has been praying here in Ephesians, exulting in who God is and all that he has done for us in Christ? Or do you tend to pray what you might call very practically focused prayers, concentrating on the specific things that you actually need God to help you with? Now, so far, Paul has been praying massive prayers, Prayers that help us to to stretch our thinking and and to stabilize our trust in God. But towards the end of this letter, in chapter 6 and verse 18, Paul will also exhort the Ephesians like this. Pray at all times, with all prayer and supplication. Keep, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, the essence of making all supplication for all the saints is to ask God to supply their needs. I mean, that's the root of the word supplication. But think about it. There may have been some massive prayers offered by Paul on their behalf, but doesn't this sound like small, little prayers offered again and again and again for the most basic and most practical needs of the saints. It reminds me of a a story that I heard about Billy Graham. There was a, a man who was on a radio show, and he was describing the time that he got to pray with Billy Graham and his inner circle before before they went into one of their gigantic stadium events with, with 80,000 people. And he said, I, I, was so, I was so excited. I was pumped because I, I figured we would drop down on the ground and there'd be thunder and lightning and the Shekinah glory cloud would descend upon us and this would be the most fantastic spiritual experience of my life. And he said, Dr. Graham started and he bowed his head and said, God... Could you please help me find my hat? It's my favorite hat. And I don't know where it is, and I'm sad about it. And he described himself as looking up and thinking, are are, are they messing with me right now? And then they also prayed for the souls of tens of thousands. And God was wholly pleased by both of those prayers. The point is that both types of prayers are crucial and both types of prayers are commanded. So brothers and sisters, pray big prayers. Ascribing great glory to God and just rejoicing in everything that is true for us in Christ. And pray tiny little prayers daily prayers, asking God to provide everything, even the most basic of your needs, because he delights to answer both. Both prayers help us to have the right perspective, and both prayers are actually extremely practical. 
Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Sometimes in the Scriptures, God pauses and He gets His people's attention to remind them of how great and how powerful, how able He actually is. One example of this is found in Isaiah chapter 40, about verse 9, through the prophet, God says about himself, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arms His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently, gently lead those who are with young. Listen to these pictures or these images that God uses to describe himself. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And by that he means the waters of the whole earth. Who's marked off the heavens with a span, that is, from his thumb to his little finger. Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel. Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It's amazing to me that that God never had to learn anything. He never had to improve in any area of life. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Think about what's being imaged here. You've got a scale and on one side is all of the weight from all of the nations on earth holding down that side of the scale. And then God puts his finger on the other side. (laughs) And the nations fly into the galaxies because of the superior weight and strength and glory of the God who is describing himself here. Think about what crafted idols look like to a God like this. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and and casts it for silver chains. In other words, they make necklaces out of these things. And you're going to bow down and worship 
that? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Verse 25, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Tonight, if it's dark, look up into the sky, to the stars, And ask yourself the question, how powerful do you have to be in order to make that? Amen. He doesn't stop there. He says, he who brings out their host by number, he's talking about the stars, calling them out by name. It's getting dark. Orion! Come forth. And he loves it. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This God is able to answer your prayers. He is, in fact, able to do all that we ask. But that's not the place Paul ends. That's the place Paul begins. In fact, Paul says, our God is able to do more than all we ask or can even think of asking. In fact, he is able to do immeasurably or abundantly more than all we ask or can even think. In fact, he is able to do far more immeasurably or abundantly than all we can ask or even think. Do you see Paul's point? He's building this as far as he possibly can. The one to whom we are directing our prayers is infinitely able to do more than anything we can ask or even imagine. Aren't you glad that God is not merely relegated to answering the prayers that we pray? Otherwise, his answers would be as lame as our prayers half the time. When we realize the fullness of the greatness of the ability and the power and the strength of the God to whom we are addressing our prayers, that matters because it affects how we pray and it affects what we pray. God delights to answer our prayers, and he does so not merely from on high, off in the spiritual distance somewhere. This God works in our lives, in and through the power of his spirit who lives within us. 
according to the power at work within us. This God's Spirit lives in us. And we know this is what Paul means here. He's not exaggerating because he just prayed the exact same thing just a few verses ago in verse 16. So the reality is, and let me pray this for us. Brothers and sisters, may, may him who is far more than immeasurably able, may he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being in order that, in order that you can grasp and know the greatness of the love of Christ in order that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. That's how these words bring to completion what Paul has been praying about over the last few verses. And he concludes with these words. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's take a moment to consider, and not assume, but consider what it means that God would be glorified in his church. And, somewhat of a provocative phrase, what it means that God, God is glorified in Christ Jesus. How is God glorified in the church? Think both of the church and think about this church. In order for God to receive glory in the church, pause, it's possible for us to gather every single week and God not receive glory. How offensive must that be to him? May we with all of our might as we trust in Christ and depend upon the Holy Spirit, do everything possible to give God glory in a way that is pleasing and honoring to Him every time we gather. In order for God to receive glory in the church, He has to be the central focus of the Church. He has to be the exalted and the exclusive object of our worship. All of our songs must remind us, must recall his awesome deeds. All of our songs must rejoice in him. And all of our songs must rightly honor him as the one who is exalted above all blessing and praise. In order for God to actually receive glory in the church, he must be the foundational and the continuous and the ultimate joy of his church. His presence among us is what we long for. His presence 
among us, keeps us from languishing in despair when things get hard. His presence among us is what launches us out into the world to to invite others to, to come in and to taste and to see that the Lord our God is good. In order for God to receive glory in the church, we must freely and joyfully confess our dependence upon him. Our dependence upon God must be individually and corporately expressed through faithful and through fervent prayer. It's why we take a full week early on in the year to to ask God to help us and to ask God how he wants to use us. So that if anything worthwhile happens during the course of that year, we will not be tempted to say, well, it's probably because we're skilled at whatever it is that we're doing. God forbid that anything other than to God be the glory would be that which comes from his servants. Our dependence upon him must, must be visually demonstrated through communion and, and through baptism in order that God would be glorified in his church. And we're going to do that today. We're going to celebrate baptism today. Our dependence upon him must also be visibly demonstrated through self-sacrificing works for others that, that require us to depend upon the Spirit's leading and upon the Spirit's filling and upon the Spirit's strengthening and upon the Spirit's sanctifying work as we are increasingly built into a dwelling place for God. Because a lack of prayer may reveal the horrifying reality of self-reliance. But unless the Lord Unless the Lord himself builds his house, we are wasting our time. We want to be dependent upon God so that God receives glory. In order for God to receive glory in his church, he must be the one whose whose majesty and whose magnificence, and and as we learned earlier in Ephesians, whose multicolored wisdom is proclaimed from his word week after week after week by the power of the Holy Spirit. In order for God to be glorified in his church, his worth and his works and the wonder of his being must be the meat upon which we feed our starving souls. In order for God to be glorified in the church, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit must be and evermore become our glory in every way we can possibly declare that he is worthy of adoration, in every way we can demonstrate our allegiance to him, and in every way we can accumulate more and more disciples who might one day share our passion for the glory of God to be revealed among us and over every square inch of all of his creation. And if this church is not doing that, go somewhere else and find a place that is. 
so that your souls would be filled to overflowing because of the greatness of the God that you behold and can see in his word. And if that's not here, don't let us waste your time. There's too much at stake. May God be glorified among us as a people. Not just in every conceivable way, but also in ways we have not even imagined yet, which is perfectly consistent with what Paul tells us here. And as Paul's prayer comes to a close, he once again focuses us on the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory in the church and to him be glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. From really from the opening verses of Ephesians all the way to these final words in Paul's prayer, he has proclaimed to us again and again and again that every blessing that comes to us is found because of the fact that we are in Christ. So the key to understanding how God is glorified in Christ Jesus is to understand that Jesus fulfills a role of what we might call double representation. In other words, Jesus represents the Father to us and he represents us to the Father. This is what it means that he is our mediator. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or representation of his nature. So much so that Philip once asked Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus said in response to him, Philip, how can you ask me that? Do you even know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not understand this? Because Jesus so perfectly represents the fullness of the greatness of the glory of the Father to us. But that's only half of what he's representing. Jesus is also our representative to or before the Father. He is our high priest and he is our older brother. Jesus is our sin substitute and Jesus is our holiness substitute before the Father. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead and the one in whom we place all of our hope even as he, as the second and final Adam and our representative head now sits in the place of honor and of glory at the Father's right hand. 
Think about what's true for us because of our union to Christ. Here are the options for us. We are presented before the Father that is the most holy being in the universe, either apart from Jesus, that is, dressed in the filthiness of our own righteousness and good works, standing before God dirty and corrupt and guilt-ridden and shame-filled. But then Jesus covers us, and he represents us to the Father, clean, beautiful, innocent, joyful, and free. So, God is glorified both in the way Jesus perfectly represents the Father to us and as the perfect representation of us to the Father. And finally, may God be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Even that last word is important. Because we say amen when we believe something is true and we want to declare that we think that it is and are putting our trust and faith in it. It's our way of saying, yes, Lord, let it be. And yes, Lord, we believe. In Revelation 3.14, Jesus says the most fascinating thing to John. He says, write this to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. So, perhaps the most stunning way that God is glorified in Christ, perhaps the most powerful way Jesus represents the Father to us, is that, 1 Corinthians 1.20, all of his promises, that are the Father's promises, are proven to be yes and amen in Christ. Perhaps the most stunning way that we are represented by Christ to the Father is that, here's the last part of 1 Corinthians one twenty, is that through Jesus we utter our amen to God for his glory. In other words, we're saying Look at Jesus. He's our amen. He's our yes. The best we could do is say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Look at Jesus. He's representing us. He's our amen. And the Father says, he's my amen too. Because all of my promises are yes and amen in my Son. Therefore, our hope is that God would be glorified throughout all generations. In other words, here on earth, in this world for as long as it lasts, and that God would be glorified forever and ever. That is, 
even in the world to come. May God receive glory. Amen, amen, and amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And we are thankful that we can come before you in Christ Jesus. And so I pray that now as we sing and we consider, consider the reality that by faith we are actually before your throne, beholding our God. Father, we come to you confidently for two reasons. One, that we are in Christ Jesus, and two, that the Holy Spirit lives within us. Therefore, we now rejoice to be in your presence without fear. And we rejoice because we have the opportunity to praise your name. Lead us by your Spirit now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.